This week in the Dan Cave, worried about the Seahawks not doing enough in free agency? I'll tell you why you shouldn't be. We'll also take a look at how severely Doug Baldwin's injuries affect the roster on offense and give you some names of Baldwin-esque type receivers the Hawks could be targeting in the upcoming draft. And baseball season is back. The Mariners are 2-0, but could they really be competitive this year after tearing that roster apart? I'll give you some reasons for optimism. That and more in the Dan Cave up next. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. All right, guys, welcome back to the Dan Cave. Been on a bit of a hiatus. It's been just over a month since I've recorded an episode, so thank you for your patience. Uh, we've had some disabled list issues here in the cave. Um, I had some health issues, uh, and then uh, my better half, Erica, got laid up with a uh, pretty significant back injury thanks to Mother Nature and all the snow that she dumped on us um, six weeks ago and, and all the, the shoveling that we had to do. So we've... Uh, We've we've kind of been a mash unit around here, but Erica's back up on her feet and back at work. And uh, I did some upgrades to the studio in the meantime, so hopefully the uh, audio quality of this recording should be better than it was before. Um, and a lot has happened in the last month or so. Uh, we're certainly officially into baseball season now because of the early openers in Japan. We'll touch on that in the next segment. And then, of course, we have... We're right in the heart of it in the NFL offseason. We've had the scouting combine. The draft is now less than five weeks away. Free agency is, for the most part, um, complete. At least the big names and and a lot of the big money has been spent. Um, And then it's the first week of March Madness. And I actually want to start there. We're not going to get too deep into this. Because as you all know, I'm a Coug and the Cougs aren't in March Madness. They're not even in any of the other seven postseason tournaments uh, that are out there now. I think it's I think it's seven, something like that. It's either two or seven. But I, I did just want to say this. I tweeted something out the other day, if you follow me on Twitter. If you don't, you should be. It's Seahawks Forever, uh, at Seahawks Forever on Twitter. Um, and I just want to make this clear. I, I basically tweeted out a, a Go Huskies. Um, and even though I am a diehard Coug, um, and always will be, and I've said this before in regards to the football program too, when they're not playing us and when it doesn't affect us, and by us I mean Washington State, um, I support the program. I grew up here. I'm a Seattle kid and was a diehard Husky football fan and basketball fan growing up. Um, you know, Marv Harshman was a coach when I was young, and, and there were some really, really great strides made by the program, and especially those teams with – Detlef Schrempf and Christian Velp, uh, guys like Clay Damon. I used to pattern my jump shot after Clay Damon, but Detlef Schrempf was my hero. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, in fact, I wore his number in high school. Um, absolutely loved watching him play. Went to some games at what was then called Heck Edmondson Pavilion. And uh, and then even through the program, uh, the next shift under, under Romar with Isaiah Thomas and Nate Robinson and Trey Simmons and those guys, Brandon Roy, obviously, um, they've they've had some great runs and and they're a lot of fun to watch and and I like the way this team plays and and Mike Hopkins was obviously a, a home run of a hire for the Huskies, just signed the six year extension. He's not going anywhere, um, and hopefully now WSU can re- 
can replicate that a little bit. Um, you're certainly not going to be able to go out and get someone with the pedigree of a Mike Hopkins, but at least there's the opportunity there now. And as I watched the Huskies, and they looked good yesterday, and, and, and I think they're built to make a run in this tournament. They're so long. They're so athletic. They defend well. They rebound well. Um, it just really depends on on how they perform offensively. They can be streaky. They don't really have those those lights-out shooters you can count on that can really carry you in the tournament. But they defend and run and rebound so well, and they're so long and athletic that they can really do some damage. So uh, I hope they make a deep run. Um, but I am encouraged by the state of the WSU program for two reasons. One is uh, the new athletic director, Pat Chun, very, very respected nationally um, with his background at Ohio State and the things he's done already since he's been on campus and, and the trust that he's already earned from Mike Leach. Um, who was skeptical about an a, a new AD coming in after his friend Bill Moose moved on. Um, but you see some of the things Chun has done in the athletic department already. And just the fact that he had the balls, that he had the nuts to fire Ernie Kent with four and a half, four point two, four point three million dollars $4.2, $4.3 million in guaranteed money left on that deal. That's money that a lot of people thought was too significant for Washington State to be able to swallow. But I love what Chun said on a radio show a couple of days ago. He said, look, there, there's a cost in making this move, obviously. But the program had eroded. That was the term that he used. It, it, it had eroded to the point that I didn't think we could fix it from within. And he said, yes, there's a cost in making this move, but there was also a cost in not making the move. How much damage would, would have been done by staying the course with Ernie Kent? Because it was just embarrassing, even as a diehard fan. I, they were unwatchable. I I don't think I watched one full game collectively with all the the bits and pieces that I that I peered in on here and there of the Cougs this year. They just were unwatchable. There's talent there, and that was a frustrating thing. And Chun alluded to it. There's talent there. C.J. Ellaby, best freshman in the Pac-12. Um, Ernie Kent made a lot of excuses, but having talent wasn't one of them. Keeping it was. I think 60% of his recruits ended up transferring out of the program. That's a huge red flag. But I'm hearing a lot of this the last couple of days. You, you just can't win in Pullman. Facilities aren't good enough. They don't use charter airplanes. They can't really pay to get a big-name coach in there. It's hard to recruit to. And all those things are true. But you can win there because it's been done before. George Raveling did it. Kelvin Sampson did it. Tony Bennett did it. And it can be done if you find the right guy that understands how to do it. And this is something Ken Bone didn't understand, certainly something Ernie Kent didn't understand. It takes more than just finding the right players that fit Pullman. That's something Mike Leach has done very well. It's something Mike Price really excelled at when he was the head coach of the football program and had all the success he did. He, he would identify personality profiles and types of kids early in the recruiting process, and, and he would just eliminate some recruits as potential targets because he just didn't think they would fit into Pullman, would enjoy Pullman, and the culture there, or that they would ultimately succeed in Pullman. Bennett, well, Bennett's dad, who signed that great recruiting class that kind of carried them through even Tony's years with Kyle Weaver and Derek Lowe, um, you can't go after the five-star kids. You can't go after one-and-dones. 
you don't want to rely too heavily on JC transfers, although that, that can be a valuable pipeline. You have to find the guys that are overlooked, the three stars, the ones that might be getting a couple of Pac-12 feelers but are getting scholarship offers from the Mountain West and, uh, and even the Big Sky. Um, but guys that fit a system. And that's the thing. You have, to f- you have to find a coach who has a system and a philosophy and one that works with lesser talent. The Princeton offensive system can work. Systems based on defense, playing really good team defense, keeping field goal percentages down, and then you find a couple of shooters. And, and those guys can be had. There's so much high school basketball talent in the state of Washington. If you just focus on the three-star kids and don't waste your time going after the fours and the fives, guess what? You can put a foundation together. You can be competitive in the Pac-12. And then you can start to attract the attention of a four or a five that likes what you're doing. The right guy is out there. Uh, I trust Pat Chun to find him. I think he may even surprise us with some of the swings he takes. Um, but it may ultimately be a guy that we've never heard of and have to scramble to Google to learn about. Um, but I think he's the right guy to hire uh, for that job. I would just, I would love to get back to where the Cougs are relevant again, fun to watch, and have a chance to play into March. It was 11 years ago today that the Cougs made the Sweet 16 under Tony Bennett. They did that two years in a row. It seems like a million years ago. So hopefully that will change now with the change happening in Pullman. But in the meantime, uh, go Huskies, and I hope they do some damage in the tournament. Let's talk football because uh, they say the NFL season is 24, uh, well, 12 months, 24 hours a day. And uh, it's never more true than this time of year. The scouting combine has become... It's evolved from something that was done behind closed doors where reporters couldn't even go in to see it to um, now it's it's every moment of is is televised on NFL Network. And now there's even talk that they're going to move some of the combine to prime time. And then we go right into free agency. And once again, as has happened the last few years, the first few days of free engine free agency are nuts. The big names come off the board fast and furious. The big money is spent. Crazy money is spent. Uh, some contracts were handed out that just that just don't make sense. There are guys that were signed that first week of free agency that are never going to live up to the contracts they signed. Um, there are teams doing crazy things in free agency that we're not used to seeing do crazy things in free agency. The Green Bay Packers always were very conservative. Handed out what, $100 million in total contracts to Preston Smith and Zadaria Smith um, and uh, Amos, the safety from Chicago, and signed another offensive lineman and handed out more money in free agency this year than they probably have in the last 10 years combined. New general manager, new head coach, new regime, new philosophy. Um, the Seahawks, though, keep doing what they have done, and that is to be very conservative. Um it's funny. We've talked on this podcast when this thing started up um, during the preseason last year. We talked about how uh, 
2018 was going to be important to build a foundation and, and reset the roster. And then in 2019, we were going to have all this cap space. And that cap space tar started out at about $55 million. And that seemed like a lot of money. Um, it vanishes quickly. And there's only about $12 million in effective cap space left. Um, and no big splashes. No big names. Everybody wanted us to go after Justin Houston when he was released by the Chiefs. Um, I still see a lot of fans clamoring for us to sign Indomitian Sue, who hasn't signed yet. Um, they wanted us to throw big money at um, guys like Malik Jackson or uh, Ziggy Ansah. Um, it, it was kind of like, and I get it, you know, those first few days are pretty exciting. It's it's fun to watch the NFL Network and ESPN, uh, uh, ESPN and watch the scroll at the bottom and all the breaking news. And you'll be watching uh, on NFL Network, there were a number of times where they'd be doing a remote with Ian Rappaport or one of their reporters, and, and, and he'd get a message on his phone, and there'd be breaking news right there live as it's happening. It's, it's a little bit, when you're a Seahawks fan, it's a little bit like standing uh, – standing in a window in a building that's kind of far away from the parade and just looking at the parade not being able to be a part of it, right? Or standing outside a house looking in the window at a party that everybody's inside having fun and you weren't invited to the party. You can't go. But there's a there's a real measured approach the Seahawks take to free agency. Um, and it's it's more necessary this year than ever because of the impending free agents that they're going to have to take care of. And it's the big four, right? It's Frank Clark, it's Russell Wilson, it's Jaron Reed, and it's Bobby Wagner. Clark was a free agent this year. They had to put the franchise tag on him. He's threatening to hold out a training camp. I don't think he's going to hold out into the season. It doesn't sound like he'll do that. He's going to play this season on the $17.5 million franchise tag. There have been rumors and reports that he can be had in trade if the right offer comes up, but that that price tag is high, that it would be a mid to high first round pick plus more if you want to come get Frank Clark. I don't see that happening. Um, so he's, he's going to be a Seahawk at least for this year. And then Wilson, Wagner, Reed, all free agents next year. Well, you can't franchise all three of them. So you're going to have to hope that you can get at least two of the three extended this year. And I think I think the plan will be uh, to go after Wagner and Reed, get them to sign extensions this year before the season so that you can tag Wilson next year. And I think it'll happen. But that's for another episode. The outside free agency piece of the puzzle is just something that the Seahawks have chosen not to get that involved in this year. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And they did sign a couple outside free agents. They signed Jason Myers, the kicker they should have kept last year, instead of Janikowski. They kept Janikowski. He had an uneven year, got hurt at the end. He's in his 40s. He needed to be uh, in the rearview mirror. And they put him there by bringing back Myers, who they cut last year in lieu of Janikowski. Myers went to New York and was the Pro Bowl kicker in the AFC. Had a great year. He's younger. Um, they gave him some pretty significant money, but not a lot of it's guaranteed. If he doesn't work out, they can cut him at very little cost. Um, that was a smart move. We know how bad the kicker position has been and how costly it's been since they decided to move on from Steven Hauschka. They also br brought in uh, Mike Upati, 
uh, former multiple-year All-Pro left guard from Arizona. Uh, they were able to keep DJ Fluker at right guard for, at a reasonable cost, but J.R. Sweezy got more money from Arizona than they wanted to pay, so they brought EU Potty back, essentially trading EU Potty for Sweezy with the Cardinals. And when healthy, EU Potty is better than Sweezy. Uh, so that's a bit of an upgrade. Um, outside of that, though, they've just focused on keeping their own guys. They re-signed Akeem King, right? They tendered all of their restricted free agents. Um, I think they'll sign a longer-term deal with George Fant, but they tendered him, so he's in the fold. And I think what changed the plan, and I, I do think that we may have seen a fairly significant free agent signing by now. I don't think the Seahawks had any idea that they were going to be able to keep K.J. Wright. It looked in the early days of free agency like the linebacker market had gotten to the point that Wright was going to be able to command $8, $9, $10 million a year on the open market. And in that case, there was no way he was coming back to Seattle. They just weren't willing to pay that. But they were able to get him at significantly less than that. Wright wanted to retire a Seahawk. He was motivated to take, probably left money on the table by staying in Seattle, and structured the two-year deal in such a way that this might be his last year, that he can walk away, the Seahawks can walk away from him in 2020 uh, with very little cap penalty, or he could walk away. Um, he acknowledged that the, the injuries had taken their toll last year, but that he's healthy now, and, and he's excited to get back out on the field, and he, and he didn't want to go anywhere else. That's, that's a win. That's I think the Seahawks see that as a free agency addition because they had written it off. And then what they did is they also signed Michael Kendricks. And we all expect Kendricks to get some jail time when his sentencing comes up next month. But the way they structured his contract and the way that, that things work in the NFL, if he were to get six months in jail, a year in jail, then the, the, he would be put on the, the reserve list. He wouldn't count against the cap this year. The Seahawks could then go out and spend that money, but his contract would toll into 2020. So they've basically locked down their weak side linebacker position for the next three, four, five years. KJ for one or two more years, and then Michael Kendricks, who will be 28, 29, even after he does some time. A Pro Bowl level, near Pro Bowl level linebacker, outstanding player, motivated, wants to be here, inexpensive because of his because of his transgressions. Um, but we're talking about white-collar crime here, so a guy that great in the locker room, everybody loves him, good player. You basically have weak side linebacker now taken care of uh, for the next few years. You'll lock up Bobby Wagner, that spot's taken care of. So there, there didn't need to be a lot of free agent additions. You weren't going to spend big money on a receiver which is a need we'll talk about in a minute, because there just weren't any in the free agent market this year that that, that could command that. You weren't going to spend any more money on the offensive line. It's essentially set. You weren't going to spend money at running back. They're set there. On defense, the clear need that gets talked about in regards to the draft and free agency is they need to add to the pass rush. They need to add someone to bookend with Frank Clark to improve that pass rush. It was good last year, but inconsistent at times. Deion Jordan's moving on. You need some help for Frank Clark. 
So there was an expectation that we're going to do something in the free agent market. They did bring Aaron Lynch in, the former 49er and, and Bear, for a visit, but he's moved on now. He's visited with the Colts. They did bring Jordy Nelson in. He's yet to sign anywhere. That's still a possibility on offense. But here's the thing. I think I've figured out the Seahawks' plan. I think I've cracked the code, and I want to share it with you. When a lot of the outside experts look at the Seahawks roster, they just don't look deep enough. And the Seahawks see things in it that the analysts don't. They see Frank Clark. They see Jaron Reed. They see Bobby Wagner. And that's it. Then they focus on the subtractions. Well, there's no more Legion of Boom. God, I'm getting tired of hearing that, aren't you? Safety struggled last year. McDougald's a decent player, but the young guys struggled, and their young corners struggled at times, and and there's nothing else on the on the defensive line. They need pass rush. I'm going to name some names for you, and these are guys that that you might not know much about, or you've forgotten about, but the Seahawks haven't. And w- what Pete Carroll has shown that he can do. They got away from it after the Super Bowl because they got caught up in the core that they had. But what they did to build that Super Bowl team is they developed talent. You know why they've hit on so many fifth-round draft picks and undrafted free agents? It isn't because they got lucky. They didn't just get lucky taking Cam Chancellor in the fifth when everybody else in the league missed him. They didn't just get lucky and hit a lottery ticket by getting... Richard Sherman, and he just magically became a Hall of Fame level cornerback. They developed those players. Cam Chancellor played special teams as a rookie, didn't play much safety at all. Richard Sherman wasn't going to see the field at all as a corner his rookie year until the two guys in front of him got hurt. Even Bobby Wagner wasn't an all pro his rookie year, right? Was making the transition, had never played full time Mike linebacker, played some outside in college. They develop those players. There are guys on the back end of the Seattle roster that haven't played that you might not be familiar with that I believe the Seahawks feel much better about than the analysts are aware. Puna Ford, undrafted last year out of Texas. By the end of the year, y'all knew who Puna Ford was, right? You might have written him off in training camp. A 5'11 defensive tackle? That's crazy. And then Tom Herman, his college coach, came on local radio and said, this guy's going to be a 10-year pro bowler, best play, one of the best players I've ever coached, right? We saw that near the end of the year, one of the highest graded defensive tackles down the stretch is going to be the starter next to Jaron Reed this season. Quentin Jefferson. You may have written off Quentin Jefferson because he was a draft pick four years ago fifth rounder of the Seahawks, flamed out. They released him, went to another organization, came back off the scrap heap. By the end of last season, he was a key contributor and one of the better players on that defensive front, and he is still only 25 years old. And the Seahawks tendered him, brought him back as a restricted free agent. Rasheem Green, remember him? The third round pick out of USC last year? Was the best player on the defensive line in the preseason. Had three sacks, I believe. 6'4", 280, can play inside and outside, long arms, athletic, strong. 
unlimited upside. He turns 22 two months from now. Essentially redshirted last year. He's going to figure in the mix. Jacob Martin, we saw him come on at the end of last year. Rookie six-round pick. Was being used as a situational pass rusher. Smaller guy, 6'2", 240. Had three sacks in a specialized role. That role will expand. He's an explosive player. And then in the defensive backfield, you saw they re-signed Akeem King. We saw how well he played, shutting down Travis Kelsey against the Chiefs late in the year. He's going to figure in the mix in nickel and dime packages. Kalen Reed. Ever heard of Kalen Reed? He was Mr. Irrelevant two years ago, 2016 draft, the last player taken in the draft by the Tennessee Titans. Spent last year on the practice squad for the Seahawks. He could be your starting nickel cornerback taking Justin Coleman's place, okay? Seahawks are extremely high on him, very high on him, and he fits the mold, built very similar to Coleman, his story similar. Remember, none of you knew who Justin Coleman was. Second year in the league, Seahawks got him the week before the opener two years ago, traded a seventh-round pick to New England to get him, played in the opener with just a week of practice under his belt, now he's a $9 million a year player for the Detroit Lions. So remember the name, Kalen Reed. And then all those young safeties. They've got McDougal holding, holding it back there, or holding it down as the veteran back there. But Tedrick Thompson and Shalom Luani, who they traded a seventh-round pick last year for from the Raiders, are just 24 years old. Delano Hill is still just 23 years old. And the Seahawks feel a lot better about those guys than some others do. So I don't think the Seahawks feel like they have the glaring weaknesses everyone else does. Would they like to add an impact edge player? Of course they would. And I think it still might happen. I still think Nick Perry is a possibility. Played for Carroll at USC. Had some great years rushing the passer for Green Bay. The last two years he's been injured. So he was released. Wouldn't even count against the comp pick formula. We haven't even gotten into that yet. He's still out there in the market, and his agent has been telling teams he's healthy. He's 100% healthy for the first time in a long time. I still think there's a chance to get Nick Perry for cheap as a guy who can help on the edge. And then there's still the draft. Even though there's only four picks, you know they're going to acquire more. They're going to trade down. They're going to end up drafting somewhere between five and seven players. And what they've done by not signing outside free agents is at this point they've essentially guaranteed that they're going into next year, 2020, the draft, with 11 draft picks to start with. Schneider's had some drafts with 11 and 12 players picked, but he's he's gotten that by trading down so many times. They could go into 2020 and look to trade up for the first time in a long time and target some players. So they have that to look forward to. So what are the draft needs then? With all that being said, I think they could surprise you because they feel so good about some of the young players on, on defense. Absolutely. Do they want to add a, a, an impact edge player? Absolutely. That's the strength of this draft, but it's the strength of the top of the draft. And then it drops off pretty significantly. And most of those guys, the Montez Sweats, the Brian Burns, the Cleland Farrells, the Josh Allens, those guys are all going to go in the top 20. But if one of those should slide, if teams start fighting over quarterbacks or getting crazy over some of the offensive talent, 
trying to get a jump on other teams before the run. If one of those guys falls, if a Montez Sweat falls because teams are scared off by his heart condition, or a Cleveland Farrell falls because he's not as dynamic of an athlete as some of those other guys, or a Brian Burns falls because teams are worried about his ability to put on and keep weight on, the Seahawks may, may just stay at 21 and take that guy. But I think they're going to surprise us with some of the picks they use for offense. I think they're going to take a tight end at some point. I think they they could take an interior offensive lineman, ideally a guy that can play center and guard. And we'll talk in a future episode about Justin Britt and his future and how they need to prepare for that. But I think, and I've written about this pretty extensively on Seahawk Maven, I think receiver is a huge, huge need. I believe it was a, a need a month ago when I wrote about it. When I wrote about some receivers they could target in the draft with their first pick, some big upside receivers, big guys like Hakeem Butler out of Iowa State, six foot six, looks like Calvin Johnson. Nobody's Calvin Johnson, but he looks and is built like Calvin Johnson. Looks like a basketball player, right? Nikhil Harry, J.J. Arcega Whiteside, big outside receivers, the types of receivers that Carroll's been looking for and hasn't been able to find. I was kind of thinking they'd go that way. And this draft is deep in receivers. Any kind, it's like a candy store. Any kind of receiver that you want. You want those big guys? They're there. You want the little tiny guys? They're there. You want the speedsters, the downfield threats? They're there. Miles Boykin. Paris Campbell. Guys that run 4 three forties. You can get those guys too. But now we get the news that Doug Baldwin has been battered and beaten um, beyond the point that we all thought he was. We knew, because it came out at the Combine, both Carolyn Schneider talked about his multiple procedures he's had this offseason. He had a shoulder and a knee operated on. That's bad enough. But now the news that he's going to see a specialist, kind of the foremost specialist in Philadelphia, on core injuries, sports hernias. Marshawn Lynch went to see this guy a couple years ago when he was with the Seahawks. And, and the reports are he's not going to get that surgery until April. So he's already recovering from a shoulder and a knee. We don't know how extensive those were. We're not talking about an ACL surgery here. They might have just been scopes. But surgery is surgery. And now you're going to cut into his core. Mike Garofolo of NFL Network reported the other day that he's heard that Baldwin has even considered retirement. I don't know how much stock to put into that. The guy is beaten up. He's 30 years old now. I had always thought this would be his last season anyway because his contract is structured in such a way that 2020, it's very advantageous for the Seahawks to move on from that contract. Um, I think it's an 11 or $12 million cap savings in 2020 off the top of my head. But now the news of these injuries, I think, places more emphasis on, I think they still need to add a veteran receiver. I think, and, and they need to draft a guy. Because even with Baldwin healthy, as I was about to say, even when I wrote about it a month ago, when we all thought we were going to get 100% healthy Baldwin this year, you got Baldwin, Lockett, and then what? Then what? David Moore looked great for five weeks. Thought he was breaking out, right? 
and then he disappeared. He was absolutely invisible the last six weeks. So there's no reason to be able to think we can count on David Moore taking the next step. And then after that, what else is there? Amara Darbo, third-round pick from two years ago, missed all last season with a shoulder injury. Seahawks cut him, went to New England, failed their physical, came back. He's 100% healthy now. He could help. And Corbin Smith wrote about that on Seahawk Maven today, if you want to dive deeper into that. Darbo could be a piece of this. Good athlete, 6'3", built well, catches the ball well, played for Harbaugh at Michigan. He could factor into this. Malik Turner could factor into this. He was called up late in the year, had a great preseason, uh, pretty explosive outside guy. But I think they need to add a vet as a hedge against Baldwin, and I think they need to draft a guy with a lot of upside. The vet, I think Jordy Nelson makes a lot of sense. He visited last week. I thought they'd sign him while he was here. They tried to get him in for a visit last year. He was supposed to come here after visiting Oakland, but Oakland kept him there, wouldn't let him leave, offered him the contract. Well, Oakland released him, and now he's free again. Schneider was in Green Bay when he was drafted. Jordy Nelson can play the slot, even though he's a 6'3 six, six, guy. You think of him as an outside guy, but played a lot of slot in Green Bay. Showed that he was fully healthy off the ACL last year in Oakland. Still a great route runner with reliable hands. Hasn't signed anywhere yet. Uh, there's interests, it sounds like, from New England and the Titans. I think Jordy Nelson would be a great short-term fit, and it sounds like his contract demands aren't that great. I'm kind of surprised the Seahawks haven't signed him already. But I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if that would happen. But in the draft, I think now they're going to be targeting someone similar to Baldwin. A guy that would operate in the middle of the field, a slot-type guy. And I'm going to post a piece later today on Seahawk Maven if you want to go deeper into this. But some names to watch for. Some guys that I'm looking at. One is Terry McLaurin out of Ohio State. Six foot, excellent uh, short area quickness, uh, works the middle of the field really well, can go deep. Um, but he'd be more of a middle-of-the-field kind of guy. Uh, even Doug Baldwin himself tweeted about Terry McLaurin a week ago. I think they share an agent, and he was pumping him up and uh, talking about what a great prospect he's going to be. And there's been first-round buzz about McLaurin. He could be a guy that makes a lot of sense um, for the Seahawks. If they don't take a guy in the first round or with their first pick, wherever that may be, in that third to fifth round range, some names to watch for. Debo Samuel of South Carolina was hands down the best receiver the whole week at the Senior Bowl. A.J. Brown from Ole Miss. Both those guys are about six foot, 210-ish, strong, can go over the middle, no alligator arms, catch the ball in traffic, run good routes. And then... A small school sleeper to keep your eye on, Penny Hart from Georgia State. He's only five foot eight, but he was invited to the Senior Bowl and he lit up practices that week. He was unguardable for some of those corners. So quick, great release off the line. Very reminiscent of Doug Baldwin and how he gets his release with a stutter step and gets separation initially from from the DB. Wasn't invited to the combine and so. He's a deep sleeper. All the buzz has kind of died down, but he could be a guy that you get a little bit later on. Um, Andy Isabella from UMass also, 4-3, track star, smaller guy, works the inside of the field. Um, and then Hunter Renfro is a guy that intrigues me. If that name sounds familiar, he caught the uh, 
game-winning touchdown pass with one second left from Deshaun Watson in the 2017 national title game for Clemson. Uh, looks like a Wes Welker clone, uh, 5'10", 185, white guy, kind of built like Baldwin. Uh, hands down, best hands in the draft, catches everything. Smart player. He's a guy you could get a little bit later on too. So just something to watch out for, and um, uh, we'll see how some of those receivers stock rises and falls after pro days and as we get closer uh, to the draft. But again, I'll have a piece up later today uh, looking a little bit deeper at some of those guys that I think the Seahawks might target to uh, to eventually be Baldwin's successor. Let's talk about some baseball, shall we? When this podcast started last year, uh, we were right in the heart of the Mariners' swoon at the end of the year, and I was imploring them to tear it down, do the rebuild. They did it. Uh, we kind of followed them through that. Now we're into the, the regular season. Uh, the, the opening two games set in Japan, the Mariners take both games. Um, solid starting pitching in both games. Um, we saw some things that were fun, right? So I wanted to ask the question, could they exceed expectations? When, when the offseason was happening, all the trades were being made, all the prospects were being acquired, all the contracts were being moved. A lot of people made made the leap. They're tanking. They're doing the Houston Astros thing. They want to lose 100 games, so they also get the first pick in the draft for a couple of years. Jerry Depoto said that's not what they're doing, and and by their very actions, you can see that's not what they're doing. And I think, I think this major league roster is going to be more competitive than people expect, and I think it's certainly going to be more fun to watch. Now, you need to have proper expectations this season. And we saw it in Japan. The bullpen's going to struggle. We knew it was going to be a question mark going into the season because DePoto dipped so heavily into the bullpen um, and moved so many of our established guys in deals to make some of this stuff happen. But he also has a history in Arizona with the Angels and with the Mariners, of showing that he can find bullpen guys and he can build bullpens in quick order. And remember, there are some injuries in the bullpen. Let me back up, though, first. That lineup's going to score runs. I think it's a better lineup than last year. There's power up and down the lineup. Better on base percentage. Strikeouts are going to be lower. There's guys that take more pitches. We saw that and how they worked. Um, Mike Fires and Marco Estrada from the A's. Um, and, you know, Encarnacion really didn't do anything, hasn't gotten going yet. But they're going to hit, and they're going to score runs up and down the lineup. And it's going to get even better because Malik Smith is about to rejoin the lineup. He's going to play in the exhibition games at T-Mobile Park on Monday and Tuesday. I'll be there Monday to see that. Um, it'll be the first time he's played in the field. Uh, since he's come back from that elbow injury, but he's been hitting. He's your leadoff hitter. He's your high-on-base guy. He's going to set the table. And it's exciting to think that he'll be in that role because D. Gordon looked really good in his first two games uh, in Japan. It seemed like he was taking more pitches. He was more selective. He was hitting the ball hard even when he was making outs. Um, so if you hit him ninth in front of Smith or you decide to hit him second, that top of the lineup is really going to set the table. And there's some power in that lineup and some length to that lineup as well. So the Mariners are going to score runs. And the starting rotation is going to be solid. 
it's essentially the same rotation as last year, except you say Kikuchi is in the place of James Paxson. And Kikuchi had an outstanding debut in Game 2. And isn't even if James Paxton is healthy all year and pitching his best, I think Kikuchi has shown the kind of upside that he's not going to be that far off. Marco Gonzalez is probably going to take a step forward. Then you have LeBlanc and Leak and Felix. Who knows what you're going to get from him. But the, the rotation is essentially the same as the one that won 89 games last year. The difference is in the bullpen. And the bullpen did struggle. Altavilla looked terrible. Rumbelow looked terrible. But there were some good signs. Zach Roscup looked outstanding as a lefty out of the bullpen. Hunter Strickland looks like he could take that closer role and run with it against a very, very good Oakland lineup. Strickland with saves in the first two games. He's got two saves. Nobody else in Major League Baseball even has a save yet. So he looks good. Some of the younger guys showed some promise. Brandon Brennan, the kid they got in the Rule 5 draft from Colorado, showed some good stuff. And Rowenis Elias looked as good as I've seen him look since he's been here. Which bodes well for a couple reasons. He can go multiple innings. He can be a long reliever. He can pitch three or four innings. So he could be the guy to come in when they um, when they dial Kikuchi back every four or five starts, where they only let him pitch an inning or two. Elias could be the guy to come in. He could be the guy to bail out Felix when he has a bad start every once in a while. And ultimately, he could be a guy that could spot start and take some of Felix's starts if he just if he's just terrible and they have to move him to the bullpen to protect him. Elias could also have some value later on down the road uh, as a trade chip if he pitches well. But remember the injuries. That bullpen is going to get better as guys get healthy. Gerson Batista got, uh, came over in part of that Mets trade, uh, was having an outstanding spring. The book on him was throws 100 but can't control it. But it looked like the Mariners had, had worked with him. He was... He was throwing more in the 95-96 range, but with better command. Had an outstanding spring and then uh, had a lat injury. It's just a grade one. Doesn't sound serious. He'll be back soon. Sean Armstrong, who led the Rainiers in saves last year and looked good in September for the Mariners last year. Again, uh, I think it's an oblique injury. Minor, those can linger, but they'll be careful with him. But he'll come back at some point. He could really be a strong addition in the 6th, 7th, 8th inning. Uh, Anthony Swarzak, who also came over in the Mets deal, an established veteran reliever who had one of the best years of any reliever in baseball two years ago as a setup guy. Um, coming back off a shoulder impingement, he should be ready to go soon. And then Sam Tuivilala, who was acquired from the Cardinals last year uh, for Seth Elledge, um, outstanding young reliever who can also go multiple innings. Uh, had the Achilles tear last year. He's ahead of schedule. He'll be ready by midseason. Those four guys alone will make a dramatic impact on that bullpen um, if this team should surprisingly hang around in the race. And don't be surprised if that happens. The Rangers made some nice additions, but they were a bad baseball team last year, and there's no reason to think they're going to become a contender this year. The Angels still have that great lineup. They got Mike Trout. They still have a lot of questions. Uh, in their pitching staff. And speaking of questions on their pitching staff, we just saw the Oakland A's run out Mike Fires and Marco Estrada as their top two starting pitchers. Their top two pitching prospects are dealing with serious injuries right now. That lineup is good, but Matt Olson just had to have hand surgery. He's going to be out for a while. Um, 
the A's are going to be hard-pressed to to repeat what they did last year. They have the great bullpen, and their lineup's going to carry them, and they'll still, they're still probably the favorite to win the division. What I'm saying is I think the Mariners are going to be more competitive than people are giving them credit for. So keep an eye on that. I think they're going to be fun to watch. I got up 2.30 in the morning to watch both both of those games. Uh, I wanted to do it opening night just because it was such a unique thing, and I wanted to see a lot of the new guys. I wasn't going to do it the second night because I was tired, but I'm glad I did because I got to see Ichiro's last game. And I just wanted to just give a couple of thoughts on Ichiro because I really think I, I was as hard on the Mariners as anyone last year when they signed him coming out of spring training for the major league roster um, because I thought there were better alternatives on the free agent market. I thought it was uh, a dumb PR move um, for a new ownership group and a new GM. I thought it, uh, it, you know, reminded me of the old ownership group and doing something for marketing over winning. Uh, I thought it was a terrible, terrible move and I, and I hated it at the time. Not so much now. And, and now I actually suspect that even back then, knowing these games were coming up in Japan, that this was the plan all along. That he would spend last season as that special assistant in the dugout, work with the younger players. I think Ichiro could see his mortality, knew that his career was coming to an end. He couldn't do the things he used to do. I think he he allowed himself to work more on relationships in the clubhouse with other players, staff. He was more open with the media, um, more appreciative, uh, less selfish in the ways that he went about his business. And um, to wrap up his career the way he did, uh, playing right field, running, making some catches, running down some balls in the outfield, um, being able to say goodbye in his home country of Japan in a Mariner uniform. Uh, it was classy the way they did it, the way they let him run out to right field in the eighth inning and then uh, had him come off the field. Um, it was really heartwarming, and it, it was amazing to see. The guy's a legend. Uh, I think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, 2025 is when he'll be eligible for the Hall of Fame now. By playing these two games, this year actually counts, and it puts his induction eligibility off for a year. But I think he, even he would admit it's worth it, and he'll get in that Hall of Fame sooner or later. Um, I also want to talk about the Rainiers because I think one of the coolest results of this process that they undertook in the offseason wasn't just what it's going to do to the Mariner roster in the next two years in some of the young, exciting players we're going to see come up and develop and make that team a contender. But now, the Tacoma Rainiers are suddenly more interesting than they've been in 10 years. The Rainiers in the last four or five years had become one of those AAA teams that was merely a place for burned-out old veterans to play in case there was an injury in Seattle and they needed someone as a stopgap. There were no top prospects. There were no future stars. The pitching rotation, uh, in particular, was just a bunch of slapped-together, uh, either old burned-out prospects that were too too old to really make an impact anymore, or, as I said, veterans that were just hoping for one last chance. Not the case this year. Uh, in fact, I've already bought Rainier's tickets. I'm going to a game in April. Um, let's just go over a couple of the names you're going to be able to see opening day in Tacoma. 
the starting rotation. Justice Sheffield and Eric Swanson. Swanson came over in the Paxson deal from the Yankees. Sheffield was the headliner in the Mets deal. Um, Sheffield's one of the top prospects in baseball. They are both going to open the season in the Rainiers rotation. Both of them will be in the Mariners rotation at some point this season. So it's going to be fun to watch their development. Sheffield had an outstanding spring. Swanson looks strong as well. Um, but Swanson profiles more as a fourth or fifth starter, and that's kind of what he looked like. Sheffield looked like even he had taken a step forward this spring, and some of his breaking stuff that scouts had questions about was better than advertised. Um, if he has a great first couple of months, the Mariners will find a way to get him into the rotation in Seattle sooner rather than later. Shed Long and J.P. Crawford are likely going to be your double play combination. Long will mostly play second base, although they're going to move him around and groom him as a super – uh, not utility guy, because I think his major league ceiling is a, as an everyday player, but one who can play at different positions. He'll play some third. He'll play some left field. But primarily, he'll play second base. And uh, J.P. Crawford is your shortstop of the future. And now, one real positive note we saw in Japan is they don't have to rush Crawford. They brought Tim Beckham in, the former number one overall pick as a stopgap so that they wouldn't have to rush Crawford because Crawford really struggled last year with the bat in Philly. No questions about him defensively or attitude-wise or any of those other things, and he does have some skills at the plate. Uh, throughout his minor league career, he showed a high on-base percentage, good pitch selection, can hit for average with a little bit of power. Um, he can take his time now because Tim Beckham might have been the best player on the field for the Mariners those first two games. Um, looked great at shortstop and really stung the ball. Hit the ball hard. Um Again, selective at the plate, knows what he can handle and what he can't, patient. Um, there's a chance that he could end up playing shortstop for longer than any of us expected in Seattle. Worst case scenario is that when, Crawf or when, when Crawford's ready and is called up, that Beckham, not even being 30 yet, has can kind of rebuild some value and, and, and can be traded for something of value at some point too, but... Uh, that was real positive to see. Uh, Braden Bishop is going to be your everyday center fielder. Um, a gold glove level center fielder who really took some some steps forward last year with uh, hitting the ball for power. He's never going to be a 30 home run guy, but he could be a 15 to 20 home run guy. Um, had such a great spring that he was on that roster in Japan. Um, if Smith proves re ready to go on Monday and Tuesday, then Bishop will be sent down. But he'll be your everyday center fielder in Tacoma. Um, and even a guy like Joey Curletta may not have heard of him. He, he plays some outfield, some first base. He was a Mariners minor league player of the year last year uh, at Arkansas AA. He hit two eighty two with a three eighty three on base percentage, 81 walks, 24 home runs, still just 25 years old. He's a guy that, that could be uh, a viable player for them moving forward as someone versatile enough to play a corner spot and also play some first base. And then before the end of the season, it gets even better because there's guys sitting in double-A, and there's so many prospects now at certain positions that let's look at single-A, right? Jake Fraley had one of the best springs of anyone for the Mariners, but there's no room for him in AAA or AA because there's so many good outfielders now. He's going to start the season at high A Modesto. He could be in Tacoma by the end of the year. But Arkansas, AA, Justin Dunn, starting pitcher, came over in that Mets deal. Exceeded 
most scouting reports and expectations in the spring and was almost untouchable. Striking guys out, looked fantastic, really put some of those um, some of those questions to bed about is he eventually a guy that profiles as an Edwin Diaz type that can be converted to a high leverage reliever. Um, even Scott Service himself said he's absolutely a starter. Had a great spring. He's going to open the season in double-A. Evan White, first-round draft pick of two years ago, gold glove first baseman, also showed signs of hitting for power last year, is going to hit for average. He's going to be in Tacoma before the end of the year. Kyle Lewis. Thankfully, we may be on the verge of seeing Kyle Lewis restore his status as a top prospect. Maybe had the best spring of anyone. Hit 400 with power. looked nothing like a guy who shredded his knee two years ago in the minors. Looked athletic and lean and strong. He may be back as a top prospect. And if he picks up where he left off and he dominates in the first couple months in AA, they'll rush him to Tacoma pretty quick as well. And then, as I said, Fraley probably isn't going to be in single A for long. He'll be at Arkansas. Um, And then Dom Thompson-Williams, who came over in the Yankees trade, uh, could also make it to Tacoma by the end of the year. And then there's a bunch of good bullpen guys, David McKay, Wyatt Mills, Art Warren, Joey Gerber, some names to keep track of for the Mariners. So exciting things happening in Tacoma. It'll be fun to go to Rainier games. And what I love about going to Rainier games is, is now we get to see some of the top prospects in baseball. We get to see the future Mariners, literally, in Tacoma, which hasn't been the case in a long time, in a beautiful ballpark that was remodeled just a couple years ago for pennies on the dollar what it costs to see a major league game you can go to tacoma park for free you can get box seats the section above the diamond love club seats um for 11 bucks shoot on mondays they're 15 dollars, but you get a hat and a meal uh go to some rainiers games this year uh it's a great time and you're gonna you're gonna be laying eyes on some players that are gonna be going to be mariner stars for years to come uh, that's going to wrap it up for episode 29 of the Dan Cave. Again, thanks for your patience. Um, I'll be back on a weekly basis now moving forward. Um, we'll keep an eye on uh, Seahawks signings, potential signings, and as we get closer to the draft, I'll do some more specific looks at players that I think would fit uh, the Seahawk mold and that they might be targeting. Also, um, keep in touch with Seahawk Maven. It's seahawkmaven.io. Corbin Smith um, provides content every day. He's the site manager. Uh, and he does a tremendous job, and then uh, uh, I'm writing for them on a regular basis as well. Follow me on Twitter, at Seahawks Forever. Please email me your questions. I will read them on the air, any ideas you have, things you want me to cover um, on the podcast. uh, Help produce it for me, you know? Tell me some subjects you want me to cover. Give me a player name, and I'll do a little scouting report on them, or just ask me questions, and that email is thedancaveshow at gmail.com. Uh, Until next week, thank you again for listening. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. Until then, go Seahawks, go Mariners, go Coos. And you know what? This week, go Huskies.